Welcome back to The Profitable Python. I'm your host, Ben McNeil, and on this episode, you will meet Alexei Grigorev. Alexei lives in Berlin with his wife and son. By trade, he's a software engineer with a focus on machine learning. He works at OLX Group as a lead data scientist, and some cool facts about Alexei are, he's a Kaggle master, he wrote a couple of books, one of them called Mastering Java for Data Science, and the other one that he's working on right now called Machine Learning Book Camp. And that's not a typo, it's called Book Camp, which was recent re recently released as a MEEP. So Alexi, welcome to the show. Uh, pleasure to be here, hi. Yes, uh, yeah, glad to have you. And one of the first things I wanna talk about was, for those of you that don't know what a MEEP is, it's early access to the book. Can you, can you talk about like the benefits that your readers get by signing up for the MEEP right now? Mm -hmm. Yes, so uh, MEEP is, uh, it stands for Mining Early Access Program, meaning that the uh, book is uh, half ready, so it's still in progress. So it's not really a complete book, just a few chapters, but it's already possible to, to look inside and decide whether you want to buy it or not and then eventually also buy it. And then when uh, the book is ready, uh, you'll have a complete copy. Yeah, the, and uh, I think there's like three, like three chapters you can just jump into right now, yes, right? Yes, right now, uh, exactly. So for the book camp, book, uh, right now there are three chapters and one appendix. In total, uh, there are 10 chapters. So it's like 30% ready right now. Cool. And this is all machine learning, hands-on, like, like zero to hero type stuff. Get your hands super dirty with machine learning. As hands-on as possible. Mm -hmm. uh, it, oh, go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt yes. <laughs> Yeah, so the idea is to, uh, to learn by doing. Uh, so learn machine learning by doing projects. Um, and every chapter is uh, like a new, a new project where you get a data set from somewhere try to understand what this data set about, um, uh, then build a machine learning model, and then also uh, try to, to understand what's going on inside the model. So how does it make predictions? What is the output? How we can use this output? Um, pretty hands-on. So I try to keep a theory to minimum, um, but sometimes it's not really possible because uh, at the end, uh, machine learning is applied mathematics. So there's still a formula or two here and there, but uh, the focus is pretty uh, much on coding on hands-on. Get the data, process it, train a model, and get the model, use it. Awesome, and I think like the last little nugget that I wanted to just prompt you with here was, all these projects are basically designed for somebody to go through and have a portfolio of machine learning, exactly. uh, like a body of work that they can go on, to, it's kind of catered to like getting a job in the industry, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, so the, the target uh, reader is uh, someone who can code already, like a software engineer uh, or maybe a student who's already experienced in coding, but they don't know uh, machine learning yet. So the idea is, okay, now with this knowledge that you have, like you can already code, you can just do a bunch of projects, understand how it works, get a portfolio and already if this is something interesting for you. You can already start uh, applying this uh, knowledge to get a job and then continue learning on the job. Cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see how that progresses. Uh, okay, so when it comes, uh, or 
when machine learning becomes fully commoditized, what will be the areas that software engineers will need to specialize in? Because the, the jobs that we're applying for right now, like might not even, it might not even be a thing, right? <laughs> yeah, so uh, that's actually indeed a trend uh, that uh, machine learning becomes simpler um, to, to enter for people who can code. Uh, so right now there are so many libraries where you don't need to know all this uh, mathematics. You can just take some off-the-shelf solution and just use it. Uh, one thing is library, but other is um, these software service uh, providers where you can just uh, throw in a data set and then it will give you a model. Uh, so that's pretty cool, uh, but I don't think it will um, um, anyhow uh, make uh, the jobs of data scientists or machine learning engineers uh, go away. Um, because I think it just helps them because this process of training a model sometimes is tedious. So you need to try to come up with the best parameters and things like this and just makes a lot of you just give it the data and then it gives back the model. Still, there are so many things around this, uh, around the model. So first you somehow need to prepare the data set. Even before preparing the data set, you need to understand the problem. What is the problem you're solving? And then you get the data, then you prepare the data set. Uh, then you can use either this ML uh, uh, as a service or use a library to train the model. And then there is a lot of work after you have the model. So you need to get the model somehow, um, make it available for others to consume or integrate it into existing services and then actually uh, uh, make these models useful. So that's a lot of things that are not covered by this um, uh, boxes, black boxes, where you just throw in uh, data and get models. So there is a lot of things around. So uh, I am pretty sure the, the I have job security right now as a data scientist, because <laughs> these things are not uh, going to be automated anytime soon. Maybe one little step is, but the rest uh, um, unlikely. Mm -hmm. So we still need people to actually do these things. And um, many things that these things tend to auto uh, automate is, uh, like as I said, some repetitive things. So something that uh, it's fun to do a few times, but then if you do it for the 10th time or 20th time, it's a bit boring. So it's actually a good thing that we have these tools now to, uh, to make us more productive. Okay. And if I'm hearing you correctly, um, maybe some areas, like if you're not aware of the landscape that it, that's kind of out there in order to be an effective uh, machine learning prof professional working with models and production and that sort of thing. Like it, is it, does it make sense for that person to basically uh, maybe focus a little less on like particular models because we have the auto MLs mm -hmm. and, and maybe focus more on like learning about the, the, the business and um, also like, running things in production? Is there like special knowledge that, that you recommend that we kind of uh, get by running in production or machine uh, mo learning models in production? Yeah, of course. So uh, like you have some assumptions when building a model. You think this is the model we'll bring, but once you go to production, all of a sudden the users start behaving completely different. And then you learn a lot of actually what people need uh, and then you try to adjust your model. So 
there's a lot of learning after you go live with the model. Um, that's um, learning part about user behavior. So that's one thing. Some things you didn't uh, anticipate, they, they happen. So people use the product in strange ways. Uh, another thing, of course, going to production uh, means often means uh, like a lot of load, uh, especially during peak hours, and then watching how your system can deal with this kind of load. So it's more technical. Uh, um, also, is a lot of uh, uh, like a lot of learning. So you learn a lot by just going live and seeing how model reacts, and then trying to tweak it so it doesn't go down on every. Uh, million users and it still stays there and still be able to serve. So this is uh, more like a traditional software engineering work. Um, the only uh, machine learning component there is just uh, the service you have is a machine learning service, machine learning service a model. But still uh, you need to learn a lot about like how your service should uh, be able to sustain this particular workload of uh, um, the traffic that your users generate. So this is a lot of useful learnings as well. Mm, okay. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And I was curious, how did your early days of IT uh, and, and kind of your background in databases, how did that set you up for your chosen path as a mm -hmm. machine learning uh, expert? Yeah, so I, myself, I'm from a small city, uh, like in the far east of Russia. And uh, the only university there was a pedagogical university. So I studying to become a teacher. But there was one faculty where, for some reasons, they, uh, they were teaching databases. So I thought, OK, I should go there. Um, so it was somehow outdated. I was still uh, learning how to do Delphi and all these uh, things. Uh, so like um, it was in uh, 2006 when I started. Um, so it was, for that region, it was what it needed. But for the rest of the world, it was a bit outdated. Mm -hmm. um, but somehow, like, we learned how to deal with databases, all the SQL stuff, how we need to design databases, how we need to automate processes. Um, that was fun. But one of the, um, one of the lecture, one of the subjects I really enjoyed was stats and math and all these things. But there was no way to apply these things. So because everybody just needed a database like in Delphi. Um, but then eventually I moved to a bigger city uh, in central Russia. Um, and uh, there I realized that people don't really need Delphi. They need Java. They need web services. They need uh, uh, something more interactive. Uh, but still, uh, at the end, it's a database. And then, uh, and then just uh, uh, it's a web service that goes to database. Um, and then around 2012, um, there was uh, like Coursera became popular, um, and one of the courses there was machine learning, and I happened to to watch that course, and this really changed my life. So I understood okay, this is Java is fun, databases are fun, but this is really the thing I want to do. So because I really during my studies I really enjoyed doing like all these mathematics statistics, um, I should really go this way. Mm. And during around that time, uh, positions uh, in uh, data science started to appear as well uh, in small amounts, not like now, but just a couple here and there. Um, back then I lived in Poland. Uh, 
and there were in Krakow, and there were a couple of positions already there, but all of them required like PhD, so like experience in Hadoop and things like this. Uh, so it was really tough to, to, to get in. And companies also didn't understand what they want from data science. They just heard, okay, there is this machine learning thing, data science is also a thing. Let's hire somebody with PhD and uh, figure out what we need. Hmm. Um, yeah, so it was really tough to, to, to switch from uh, Java to, to data science back then. So I decided, okay, maybe I need some education. So I did the master's. Um, and uh, in the meantime, I also worked uh, uh, remotely, uh, also doing some Java, but for machine learning. Um, and then uh, when I graduated, all of a sudden, uh, they didn't need PhD anymore. They, the market figured out what they actually need from data scientists. So they understood that PhD is a nice to have thing, but not a must. And uh, since then, it's only growing the demand for data science and machine learning engineers. Hmm. And for me, what I found out is having background in software engineering is super helpful because at the end, you have a model. So you, but now you need to do something with this. You need to go to production. And this is uh, the part where uh, many data scientists struggle with because they know how to read papers, they know how to implement things but going to production is difficult. So uh, that's why I think having uh, some experience, some exposure to software engineering is extremely helpful for data scientists to actually make use of these models and then solve real business problems by uh, productionizing the machine learning models they train. Um, hmm. So this is, uh, and I also noticed that many companies are looking for this kind of people for software engineers who, who know a bit of machine learning, maybe not super in-depth, but enough to actually to, uh, to train a model and make good impact. Because with the skills of software engineers, they can train a simple models uh, and then actually make impact by productionizing, integrating with existing services and then uh, making customers happy. Hmm. Yeah, that's uh, that's an interest interesting insight there. So, um, a little counterintuitive, I guess. Yes, you know. Yes, yes. But, so yeah. I spent so many time trying to go in depth into math, and then at the end, it turned out that it's not really that needed. It's fun. It was fun to really understand how these things work, but actually, um, the the job I'm doing, the job many of my colleagues are doing. They don't involve solving math equations. They just take a library, take a data set, spend months preparing the data set, and take this data set, then throw it into library, wait for 10 minutes, and then have a model, and then productionize it. So that yeah. part of machine learning it doesn't uh, take a lot of time, yet the focus of many uh, programs uh, in universities and online courses is on the uh, mathematics behind. This is, I think, still somehow needed to be able to understand what's going on to the same extent as software engineer probably should know how TCP works, right? Uh, but um, not many software engineers actually need to, to go deep into all this TCP stack to, uh, on everyday basis, right? Maybe once in five years there is some problem that really requires going deep, um, but uh, day-to-day -day work 
typically doesn't. And I think uh, the same happens in machine learning. So typically mm. you need, uh, you just need to have broad knowledge, good exposure to different techniques, but maybe knowing all the, uh, all the details uh, maybe aren't helpful. Just yeah. a bit of knowledge, just a bit of indication how it actually works to be able to explain when something is not right, to be able to understand and debug perhaps. Mm -hmm. um, but maybe going deeper uh, is only needed when you face this problem. Uh, not like you, uh, like I did. I tried to understand all in advance, and then it turned out to be not needed. Uh, and instead, uh, maybe I should have focused more on hands-on things and then dig deep when it's actually required. Mm. That I mean, that's seriously. This is the reason why I do the podcast because mm -hmm. you have mentorship figures like yourself that are like, "Hey, there's a thousand way to do this, but if you want to, if you want to have like any kind of quality of life." This is the path you go down. So you're like a huge proponent of like maybe get some general knowledge. Uh, you know, that's not going to be a waste. But if you're somebody that gets in the weeds with things, like don't let yourself go down these rabbit trails. If you're trying to make money with your skills, you just need general knowledge and, uh, and just focus on uh, just put it, whatever it takes to put it in production is kind of what I'm hearing. So T-shape maybe or T-shape skills. T. When you, like T is like uh, you have like a bunch of skills and then you have the breadth of these skills. Oh, okay. Uh, and then T is like you just touch a few subjects, uh, but not a few, like a bunch of them, uh, yeah. many of them. So it can be provisionizing machine learning models, preparing the data, uh, back-end services, maybe front-end services as well. Uh, like all these uh, kind of things that we have around us. Just to know a bit of them, like for example, how to, um, to go ahead and create a simple React app in JavaScript. This is super useful, but maybe you don't need, as a machine learning engineer, you don't need to go really deep into understanding how React works and how to make uh, front-end applications uh, as a professional front-end engineer. But just having some exposure is helpful but then you specialize in some particular thing for example machine learning and then you have sort of uh, this t letter so t you know when t goes down this thing goes down this is the breadth in one particular area mm -hmm. and then the uh, the thing at the top is uh, like breadth uh, like uh, knowledge uh, in different areas yeah but that makes quite shallow yes Okay, that makes sense. So if, if I were to just dig here a little bit, what would be the, the depth that, that we should be seeking as machine learning engineers? Like where's our time best spent going deep, would you say? So I think it all depends on uh, what you like. Because okay. um, what I think is uh, really helpful for a company when they hire people is that the T part that goes down for people is different for everyone. Okay. So then this... Uh, like diversity of skills. There are people who can do, uh, who can quickly go through a, a paper, perhaps for some companies it's important to still be able to understand. But then for some people, it's actually just take this and productionize this. For some people, it's make, uh, it's about making data, data, data pipelines. So this is data engineers who make sure that the data is processed uh, reliably and then uh, all kind of, uh, uh, it's called ETL, like uh, you mm -hmm. take data from somewhere, process and store it and make it available for machine learning services to consume. And if this T is different for uh, people in the team, 
uh, what team can do uh, like basically everything. And if in some parts, uh, maybe there is not, uh, there is no expert in the team, they still have some shallow knowledge to, to, to dig deeper and then solve the problem. Yeah. Dang. That's a cool concept. As you were describing that, I was thinking about things at work because I kind of, I come from a similar background of databases. Like that was my first taste of the, you know, the data world. And uh, a lot of my work, I see myself going back to the data engineering side. And, uh, but, you know, ultimately it's like, what can we do to support that mission of getting these things into production? And if I'm the database guy and there's like a Linux guy that's doing DevOps, like this is, these are good teas to have on your mm -hmm. team. So, yes. especially with DevOps, this is uh, often a bottleneck in uh, teams that observe, and that um, one thing is creating the service, and then other thing is actually making sure that the service is reliable, auto scaling, uh, and all these things, and then have proper uh, alerting. Um, all these things around uh, the DevOps service that makes it production. Uh, to make sure that all the uh, uh, like responses uh, within uh, uh, within I don't know like ten seconds, uh, uh, so like it doesn't exceed this time, uh, so it doesn't go down. All these things. This is something that uh, DevOps people or software. Um, um, I think it's called uh, reliability engineers. Uh, reliability. So, Yes. Mm -hmm. So these people are super helpful for teams and they are mm -hmm. very hard to get. And if these people now decide to learn a bit of, about machine learning, then they all of a sudden become super valuable for uh, companies that want to, to use machine learning to make lives of their customers better because they have these unique skills that uh, make software reliable. And they also know a bit of machine learning to actually understand what's going on. So this is super helpful to, to have this background nowadays. Yeah. Dang. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for uh, allowing me to open up that can of worms. That's, <laughs> that's a, that's a, that was good information. Uh, I was curious, what was your first success as a machine learning professional? So first success. Mm -hmm. So, um, well, I guess um, when I was a, a freelancer, uh, typically, I would uh, implement some uh, some things like train a model, and then what was uh, pretty frustrating for me that I didn't see what uh, would happen with this model. So it was just okay. Here's a model, use it, and then they, they would say, "Yeah, thanks, see you." And then I didn't know uh, what was going on with the model. So when I stopped freelancing and started doing a full-time job, then. Uh, I started having real projects that like working on product instead of uh, consulting. Then I could see things end to end. And this is where I started to observe uh, uh, positive output of the models. So like these successes. And hmm. then um, it was in a company that was doing um, search engine optimization. Um, that was uh, the first company where I worked at full time as a data scientist. It's called search metrics. So they are doing search engine optimization. And one of the things they were doing um, was uh, helping copywriters. Copywriters are people who need to write blog posts. So they are basically marketers. They want to, to get um, uh, the company where they are working for uh, a lot of exposure on the internet. 
So they go ahead and write as many articles as possible. So these articles get indexed by search engines. And then when people look for things, they pop up and people read these articles and then end up on the uh, company's website and mailings. So for these uh, copywriters, the task is typically, hey, you need to write, I don't know, 1000 words on this topic. So this is the topic, do your research and then come up with an article. Uh, the typical workflow of uh, copywriters uh, is go on Google, type uh, the query they want to optimize for, they want to create an article for, and then, uh, then understand what are the results are, what are top 10 websites, what they write about, uh, what are the topics uh, they cover, uh, what are the things they discuss. And then they analyze this, do some research, and then they come up with a new article that sort of reflects what is already there uh, that Google picked up by this keyword. They try to, to produce something similar. And the idea is if Google found uh, the other articles useful and valuable, so they ended up in the top result, this new article also would end up in the top results, mm -hmm. the first page, for example. And this is actually, uh, this is actually working. So this way, copywriters can uh, can produce content that uh, ends up uh, in top pages of Google. But there's a lot of manual work. So these people, they need to really uh, do some research, like understand what are the important keywords that need to be mentioned, what are topics that need to be covered for this particular keyword. So what I was the project I was doing uh, was actually uh, trying to help these people to make their job easier to, instead of uh, them going through all these uh, pages from Google, we would do this for them. And then here are the keywords that you should use because 10 out of 20 websites use this keyword. So for example, if you write about New York, then maybe word Manhattan should be mentioned or Times Square. And Times Square is, uh, two words, not just one word. So this is uh, like a, a collocation because you have two words, but they mean one thing, a particular thing. So trying to extract this, trying to understand what is um, helpful, what needs to be mentioned. That was the project I was doing. And it was at the end a, a great success because the, the companies, the clients of uh, search metrics started to use it and they really liked it. So they saw that indeed helps the copywriters to create content faster. So this was a very exciting project for me because I really liked uh, working with text data uh, and also at the same time, uh, not just creating a model and then forgetting about this, like it was in case of freelance, but actually taking end to end responsibility from the beginning of the project to actually deploying this, seeing how customers interact and try, trying to, to tweak it and then making it better. This is uh, really rewarding to to watch and do. And this was one of the first successes. Hmm. Um, of course, there were some other projects that didn't uh, go really well for different reasons. Uh, sometimes it just happens and either we decide not to focus on something and not to continue working, or maybe perhaps it doesn't get any traction and customers don't, uh, don't use it and then the project just dies. Mm -hmm. um, or we realize that we do something, but it's not needed also happens a lot in software world. Um, mm. So unfortunately, there are um, cases where a project is exciting, but then it doesn't 
uh, really have any impact. But uh, luckily there are those projects that do make impact and this is uh, really cool to, um, to think and now for me it's a good memory. Uh, it was uh, four years ago and I still remember about this project as, as if I did this yesterday. Yeah, that's, that's a really cool story. Um, uh, basically like anybody out there that's trying to come up with like a, you know, something that would work in the, in the marketplace and actually make money, you know, mm -hmm. with your skills, like mm -hmm. that's a really cool, a really cool concept that you just brought up. Mm -hmm. Um, I could also argue it's like a career path, like becoming mm -hmm. an expert. So how did you, how did you kind of manage with, I mean, it was a good experience. You're not mm -hmm. doing it anymore, but you got some some things out of it that you were able to build on top of, like, what is your, like, cause immediately is like, when I hear that story, I'm like, dude, why didn't you just keep doing that? Like, that sounds awesome. Yeah. Well, at some point, uh, like it happens when people change companies, they, they realize they're maybe not learning enough or maybe the environment is not uh, best for them. Uh, so it also happened to me. Uh, so then I, before, uh, uh, settling in uh, at Olix, I also I was in a few companies. So first was Search Metrics, um, then second was uh, a small company doing um, uh, mobile advertisement. So also marketing, but from a slightly different angle. So it's um, uh, advertisement in mobile apps. When you play something, you see these annoying things. So maybe one of them uh, was uh, because of me. <laughs> <laughs> So, but then, yeah, I eventually ended up at Oelix and um, Oelix, um, uh, many, many people don't know, this is an uh, online classifieds platform. Uh, so it's like eBay, well, on eBay you have bidding, but this is a place where you want to sell stuff you don't need or buy things you, you need. So like uh, uh, in the States, I think Craigslist is the, the best example. Mm -hmm. I think it's still one of the most popular online classifieds website, even though um, many people will think it's not super modern. Uh, so I think the, the, the web design is still from 80s or when it started. <laughs> <laughs> but business is happening there. I yes, mean, business is happening. So this is, I think it's still the most popular online classified platform in the world. Mm -hmm. um, so and Elix is still in, in top 10, maybe it doesn't have the, um, like uh, it's not Craigslist, but uh, there are some markets where Elix is present. Uh, so not in the States, but um, for example, in Poland or Ukraine or uh, India and a lot of countries, actually, it's um, 20 markets, I think, where Oelix oh, wow. is present. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's pretty global. In some markets, Oelix is present uh, in, uh, under a different brand. So for example, in Russia, people know it as Adito. Uh, it's also quite large online classifieds. Mm. Uh, and then in online classifieds, uh, there are many things that machine learning can solve. So one of the things when I started working at Relix, the first thing I was uh, working on was um, determining if quality of an image is good. So mm. people all often want to sell something and then they don't realize that uh, taking a good picture is important if you want to sell something. Um, of course, Wait, it, it is or it isn't? It is, it's very important. Okay, yeah. Yes, because people want to see the thing before deciding, okay, well, do I want to contact the seller or not? Um, although sometimes if price is low, the quality doesn't really, that, doesn't really matter. Uh, but if price is uh, 
not that low, and then picture is bad, then people don't contact the seller. So hmm. we wanted to help them to say, hey, uh, perhaps you need to to do this uh, in um, not in the complete darkness or not uh, uh, not with uh, direct sunlight or something like this. Um, so just to 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 educate people on how they should take pictures to increase their chances of selling things. Hmm. Um, and this is where machine learning um, was helpful to to analyze images that okay there is too much uh, sun exposure for example or oh it's wow dark, like or, you're critiquing them on like how to how to make the pet, the picture better and their photography is that maybe kind of... is a strong word but okay. uh, yeah like just uh, saying them educating them so mm. uh, for example if they want to sell something and then after two weeks nobody contacted then we think okay maybe perhaps it's because the picture is bad let's analyze the pictures yes indeed this picture is pretty bad so then we sent a campaign uh, like a mail to the seller hey please consider retaking this picture because in this picture there are these problems so for example this is the object is not properly centered uh, there are like it's too dark it's out of focus um, and then here is an instruction how the image should look and then after this, people would, uh, some of them, not everybody, but some of them would actually uh, follow the advice, retake pictures, and then we would see that indeed uh, the number of contacts these people started to receive uh, was a lot higher. Than people, yeah. the, the buyers started to be more interested in the, in the items. Hmm. That was one of the, the first projects I worked um, at, uh, at Willis. Um, and then um, other thing uh, in online classifieds, pretty important, is uh, content moderation. So people can, uh, you cannot even imagine what people try to, to sell or uh, like some, some illegal services or weapons or drugs or... Just scammy uh, stuff or... Scammy stuff, of course, yes, like a lot of fraud. Um, and... Uh, Typically what happens there is the content moderation platform and content moderation team that looks at the content that users publish and reject things saying, hey, this is not allowed to, to, uh, to sell here. You just ban the ad to the users or try to educate it when, for example, in uh, not serious cases, like maybe somebody was trying to sell uh, a cell phone and put them into cars category hey, the category is not right, you should mm, okay. do it. So like there are uh, innocent cases, but there are serious cases of fraud where people, for example, steal uh, images from uh, a good uh, good listing, then they pose as genuine sellers saying, hey, this is a flat I'm trying to, to sell, or this is a car I'm trying to sell, uh, or this is a cell phone I'm trying to sell. And then somebody contacts, uh, uh, a buyer contacts and this uh, fraudster tells, hey, yeah, but in front of you, there are 10 other people who also want to buy this cell phone. But if you give me $100, I'll set it aside just for you. And then mm -hmm. some people do uh, give $100 and then the fraudster disappears. So this is uh, scamming and uh, mm -hmm. want to, to, to prevent this from happening. And this is what uh, the content moderation team does. And there are a lot of things where machine learning can help. Uh, so, for example, 
uh, one of the projects I worked uh, on was detecting duplicates. This is exactly the case when somebody uh, copies existing content and tries to, to pose as a good seller. So this is the case where we can detect with machine learning. Mm. Um, or uh, maybe this user has other accounts and by looking at uh, the behavior of these accounts, like where they come from, what are the IPs, what time of the day they come from. Uh, so we can somehow cluster these accounts and understand that they actually belong to the same, uh, to the same person or the same oh, wow. entity. And then we can bond them uh, uh, together at once. Hmm. Uh, so there's, uh, there are a lot of opportunities to actually use machine learning to make the job of moderators uh, easier because moderators need to go through a lot of content. Uh, we want to help them to somehow show them like, okay, this is fine. You don't even need to look at this because this is just a pair of socks that somebody wants to sell. So this is innocent. So we don't even show this to moderators. But in some cases, hey, this looks like a gun. Please uh, show and confirm that this is indeed a gun and take an action. Like mm. remove the gun from the platform. Um, so this is actually uh, content moderation is the place uh, where machine learning started at Ovix. Uh, so this was the first um, successful use case of machine learning. Uh, it was indeed valuable. And then from that team, it started to grow. And now machine learning is everywhere in all the teams. Not all, but most of them. It, it's, it, was, uh, it was kind of their gateway drug to like, okay, we need to be anybody yes. with like a manual process or if they feel mm -hmm. like, yes, exactly. like everybody's leveraging this technology and they're more effective at their work, which mm -hmm. I think is... Yes. Uh, just my experience doing these podcasts and, and talking with people, it's like, there's a lot of fear around this technology, but it's actually mm -hmm. improving our cap like our, our ability to live life at its fullest or whatever mm -hmm. quality of life at work, like whatever you want to call it. Right. Yes. So one of the metaphor, uh, one of uh, our project manager used is our moderators are pilots and uh, like when you're a pilot and uh, you have a, uh, you have a plane. Most of the time there is autopilot that takes care of the plane. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is machine learning. So machine learning takes care of your job for you, like of these uh, cases where uh, no human involvement is needed. But when human involvement is needed, then the actual pilot of the plane takes care of uh, things. So the same is mach with machine learning. When machine learning is not sure, uh, the model says, hey, moderator, can you please review it for me and confirm that there is indeed a gun. So it takes care of the, these easy cases uh, of innocent things. So it tries to opt, automate things, but in in uncertain cases, then we try to involve a human, just like pilots. Yeah, that's a cool metaphor. Uh, yes. Yeah, I think I, I might even just uh, you know use that going forward as my metaphor. Um, cool. Thanks for sharing that. So. Um, I was curious, cause, so you're writing this book right now. So, mm -hmm. and you, and you're kind of like, you, 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 understand very well. Like if you're going to produce content, you go research what people are looking mm -hmm. for right now. Uh, so what patterns did you see in the market's needs that triggered your idea for writing this machine mm -hmm. learning book camp? Yes. So first of all, um, so I wrote another book. It's about Java and doing data science. Mm -hmm. So that was uh, maybe not the 
So it's pretty niche. So there are uh, Java is not really that uh, popular for uh, machine learning, not that widespread. Um, so then I realized, um, uh, okay, Java is cool, and I'm uh, my background is mostly Java development uh, previously. Now I'm using Python mostly, but previously it was Java, and I thought, okay, I should try to to, to fill this niche uh, and write in a book about Java and data science. But this niche is pretty small, so people in general are like the trend is now is uh, Python is the language of machine learning. So if you mm -hmm. want to do machine learning, you use Python. You don't use Java, you don't use I don't know, other languages like Scala. Okay, there is maybe, I don't know, uh, half percent of people who do uh, these things do use Java, but the majority, I don't know, 70%, they still prefer Python because uh, this is simple. There is a great uh, ecosystem of things, uh, uh, good support everywhere. Uh, so I thought, okay, so I still have some things that I want to share with the world. Um, but the world is not interested in Java. So let's write another book, this time in Python. Uh, and then the co concept of doing this by project, this is something uh, I learned at Kaggle. Kaggle is a, a website where you can, where you have uh, data science competitions. So some company prepares a data set and then asks people, the community, hey, we have this data set, can you train a model for us? And this is very hands-on. So you can train a model, you immediately see feedback um, because there is a leaderboard, you uh, you have a model, you score the so-called test data. This is the data for which you don't have, uh, you need to generate predictions. You upload these predictions on a platform and you see how well your model is doing. So you get feedback immediately. Um, so this is really hands-on, uh, it's uh, really, like a lot of coding, like you just create a model, you try to optimize the metric that you you have in the competition, and then you submit the, the, your solution and then see how it goes, how it does. Mm -hmm. So this is a lot of projects. So like each competition is a project. And for me personally, this is when I learned most. Uh, so years at the university helped me to learn theory, but this theory without actually practice wasn't that helpful. And uh, to be honest, uh, wasn't that needed to do these competitions. So because these competitions are really hands-on things. You just take a library, you apply, you try to tune parameters, you take another library, you try, you have this idea, you try this idea. Uh, so it's a lot of engineering work. Just, you have an idea, you want to code this idea in Python or whatever, and then you test if this idea works. And this made me realize that the best way, at least for me, but also for many other people on Kaggle, is to actually not just study a textbook, but rather do things. Uh, just get a data set, get uh, my hands dirty, solve this problem, and then try to understand what is going on there. And then it was a lot more helpful for me than just, uh, you know, uh, watching uh, like all these equations solved on a, on a blackboard. So that's why I think that uh, uh, this project-based approach is the best approach for people who are software engineers who can code. And uh, that's why I wrote this book. So first of all, it's Python, 
because I think Python is the lingua franca of machine learning and then it's project-based approach because I think for me personally and many people agree that this is one of the best ways of learning machine learning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, and, and actually, uh, so just hearing what you were saying there, it, it's almost like, if because I've I've worked with those Kaggle competitions before, and there's certainly a lot you can learn just mm -hmm. by seeing other people's work that they submit, and you're like, oh, everybody's upvoting this. I wonder what their methodology is, and then you can mm -hmm. kind of learn from that. But uh, it kind of there's still no like video tutorials or something that mm -hmm. you can watch on these data sets. So one might be able to argue like if you are trying to perform better as a Kaggle competitor. For example, your your resource might that your the book that you're writing mm -hmm. is almost like built on the pains that you had going through this process, and so you're kind of like this is going to be a resource that's going to help you compete better. Mm -hmm. It's going to help you get jobs, uh, 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 like a portfolio for your jobs. Like, mm -hmm. am I am I kind of understanding this? correctly well more for jobs than competition because competitions okay. uh, are very helpful also for doing jobs but they are pretty specific in a way they are designed so then mm. if um, you want to do well in competitions you go an extra mile some you do some things that you wouldn't do on your daily job so this the book is not about teaching how to perform well in competitions but rather how to to use the knowledge that I got from competitions and from the work I'm doing, and how to, to apply this knowledge to to be a good software, uh, to be a good machine learning engineer, to okay. actually solve business problems. So for uh, for learning how to compete, there are other resources. Um, I don't know a book about this, but typically this is, for example, forums of Kaggle. So mm -hmm. this is if you want to learn how to compete on Kaggle, you just need to to compete on Kaggle. And then read forums, um, um, but yeah. So this is more targeted for people who want to to do well on the job. Okay. Yeah, and that's at the end of the day, like we're trying we're trying to get these skills. We're trying to get paid. That's the mission yes. here. <laughs> so Kaggle is fun. Kaggle is a lot of fun and a lot of learning. Um, but then, as I said, some things you need to do there in order to be a competitive that you wouldn't do on your daily job. Mm. So, like um, one of the examples is uh, building an ensemble of models. Ensemble is like when you put many models into one big, huge model. And this tends to improve the score a lot on Kaggle. But this is something you wouldn't do in real life uh, on a work or on a job because, um, like, if you have 100 models, then you need to maintain each one of them. So, like, it should be a reliable service. It's just too much overhead. So you don't want to maintain 100 models. You probably want to maintain one model that does well instead of you know maintaining 100 and then also try to to assemble it into one super model. So this mm. is where Kaggle is different from real world. But the learning, like each model that you train on Kaggle, uh, how you train it is quite useful for, for real work. But maybe this last step of assembling is not, and there are some other tricks that uh, you wouldn't do on uh, like in real life. Um, so of course the book doesn't cover them, and there are other resources that, uh, that cover. But mostly this is knowledge uh, you can get by participating in competition because people tell them form, oh I do that and that and this help to improve my score. Yeah, it seemed like a cool community. Like it's very it is, yes. collaborative and like and like 
you might have like the, the highest performing score and you go to bed and you wake up in the morning and you're like position 10, you know, like <laughs> yes. things are moving. It's like, it's almost like a video game. I don't know. It's yeah. It, it's interesting. And it's very addictive. So if you, <laughs> if you have some time and you want to spend somewhere, Kaggle is uh, a very useful way of doing this, but just yeah. be aware that this is super addictive and it can be very difficult to, uh, to stop doing Kaggle. Yeah. <laughs> so be aware. Good to know. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's good to know. I wanted to, okay, so you kind of alluded to this, like the difference between Python and JavaScript and why you kind of like went that way. And I noticed on your CV, you had mentioned that you're one of your um, gifts that you bring to the world is that you are, uh, you are good at rapid prototyping. And so mm -hmm. I was wondering where do your rapid prototyping skills get applied most often? I'm just curious, like, yes. is it everywhere or, you know, is it very specific things that you find that working? Well, for machine learning, uh, but also for other software engineering pro pro projects, products, it's important to somehow validate them uh, as fast as possible, mm. often without actually coding anything. Like just for example, um, Hmm. Imagine like well, the example um, I used previously, like imagine we want to build a system that tells if an image is good or not, right? So if uh, it's framed properly, if light exposure is good, if contrast, contrast is good or focus is good. So instead of investing time in building a model, what you can do is just sit there, look at the pictures and then say, okay, this picture is not good. Let's send a mail to this seller and see how they react. So instead of investing into, uh, into building the whole thing, uh, just take some manual effort to validate this. This thing is actually worth building. Mm. Uh, test it with the users, see how they react. If it's something they actually need, if it's something that help, is helpful for them, and then invest time into learning. Um, this uh, example was a lot of manual work, so it just, uh, look at things yourself and then maybe have a spreadsheet with, uh, you know, okay, we should send this user in email. But of course you can also automate this and build something simple. Or maybe just have a simple uh, Flask app in Python uh, that maybe doesn't always follow the best engineering standards. Maybe instead of uh, having proper models, you have just one, like your main pie. But you, as fast as possible, you want to validate something to see that this is something users want, or this is some, something that other stakeholders in company think that they should invest on. So maybe they, we should convince not the end users, but first the, the decision makers who, who decide which project to do work on, which project to, to invest money. Mm -hmm. Then to convince them somehow, uh, the best way of convincing is not the PowerPoint presentation, although it also works, but what works better is a prototype where they can actually click on things. They see how it works. Um, and this is what I mean by prototyping skills, to be able to, as fast as possible, to have a thing that works most of the time and can be used to convince people that we should indeed invest time into making it a proper service or yeah. making it a proper model. So it means starting fast. And yeah. Then, uh, and then also failing fast uh, right. because often um, these decision makers say, okay, this is not what we actually meant. 
we don't need this thing. And it's very good to learn this feedback as early as possible. Uh, because if you invest uh, half a year into building things that they say, no, we didn't actually mean this, it's painful. Uh -huh. So rather we should validate the, the, what they want as early as possible, like maybe in one week. Yeah, man. I, okay, so first of all, like we're, we're about an hour uh, into this. I feel like I've gotten my money's worth out of this. Like <laughs> what you're talking about is seriously, um, I don't know if it's just like the stuff going on at my, my work right now, but like this is so critical and we are practicing this right now. And it's so exciting, I think, to know, okay, you know, in a week, we're going to know if this, is, if this thing even has a future or not. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's, it's almost like a culture thing. Like mm -hmm. if the company culture, I don't know, I, it may, it's very intuitive to me, but you talked to me a year ago. I don't know if like rapid prototyping is something that I would, you know, seek out as a skill mm -hmm. on my team or even to build on my own. But holy mm -hmm. cow, it sounds like it's one of the most important things that you can develop. Mm -hmm. So for me, uh, maybe you heard this expression. I'm really fun of this. Um, so first, uh, make it work, then make it right, and make it fast. Okay, uh, I love that. <laughs> yes, and uh, I think it, uh, it's attributed to Ken Beck like 20 years ago. So he said that. Well, he meant actually in a slightly different context and than um, what I'm talking about here. But I really love this expression, and I try to to use it uh, when possible. Uh, so, and some companies, indeed, as you said, they have a value uh, that says, "Yeah, move fast." Like Facebook, maybe heard like move fast, break things. I don't know if they still uh, have it as a value, but at some point they used to have it. Like, okay, let's move fast and then learn as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really cool framework to operate from. Um, what, what do you have? Maybe we already covered this, but just like off the top of your head, what are like three tips you have for someone to become an expert at rapid prototyping? Well, just maybe time frame. So let's say, uh, I want to spend on this only five days and I want to do as much as possible during these five days. And then like just hackathon-like mindset. So just try to squeeze most out of yourself, maybe get some people to also work on this and just move fast. So time frame uh, and not let it, uh, you know, take more time than initially. So just one week and then it's hard stop. And I think it really helps to, to think in this way. Okay, I only have one week what is the most important thing I need to focus on? Like, okay, I actually, maybe I don't need other things. Uh, so let's concentrate on this one. Let's have this particular thing working. Let's have a demo that showcases this particular thing. So it helps you also to understand what is the most important thing and work on that instead of, you know, building other things. Mm -hmm. Dang. So like, so there, there's no more tips. Like if you take that one and put it in the bank, <laughs> you're good to go. Or do you have other tips? Uh, well, I mean, that's the, good enough. Like I feel like, tip, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's my money's worth right there. No, no doubt. But I want to pry a little more. That's part of the fun with the podcast. <laughs> yeah. So maybe instead of using Java, use Python. So mm -hmm. it's a tip because Python lets you move faster. 
in Java or any other language where you have a static uh, system, um, like typing, uh, static typing system, they um, in the long uh, in the long term in the long run they maybe you can have more reliable software because compiler also helps you. But when you just start and when you move fast, sometimes it uh, doesn't let you move uh, like with the speed of thought. And Python is better for that because it's so interactive. You can just have this wonderful thing, Jupyter Notebook, and then just play it there and then copy this thing and paste it into a Python file, have a Flask service running. In Java, that would be quite difficult to do. And for me as a Java developer, ex-Java developer, for me, the concept of Jupyter Notebooks was super unnatural. So I was really struggling to, to start using them. But once I did start, there was, there was no way back. So I think just using a language that uh, like Python with all these wonderful tools, I think it really helps to move fast. And then I'm struggling to come up with a third tip. Uh, yeah, maybe just have uh, people who also want to, to uh, to help you, so not do this alone, but uh, time box and then have uh, a few people to help you. Um, mm. So I also noticed that sometimes people do this alone. Like, okay, let me just close myself in this room for a week and then I'll have a prototype. Um, probably trying to involve other people is a good idea too. Dang, man, that's uh, that's powerful. I mean, dang, there's so much gold there. Like, yeah, one of you practicing this, okay, that's maybe you can be productive. But like a group of like-minded people, like that they what do they call that? Where it's like one plus one equals three type thing. Mm -hmm. It's like I so your message is solid, man. Um, yeah, thank. Although it can be difficult, um, yeah. I think in some cases to uh, like for me as a software engineer, maybe I don't always have this uh, mindset of a um, like a manager, like you know. Uh, being able to delegate, explain things properly. Mm. Because for example, in my head, I can just sit and implement this. And when I have to explain to somebody, it makes things very slow. Uh, but I think practicing this is very helpful for any software engineer who wants to progress uh, in the career, in career to, to make you know, to next level. So I think this hackathon is a very good experience to like, uh, to, to, to have this, to gain this uh, skills of uh, translating your idea into clear message so somebody else can pick up this and implement. And this is very difficult. I also um, realized myself that in my head I already have a solution, but I don't always know how I arrived at, at this solution. And helping to unwrap this into, okay, how did I actually, uh, why did I think it should be this way? Okay. And then having like somehow having clear path, like clear steps, how I reacted the solution and then explaining the steps to other person. This was also really helpful for me. And this is something I also learned at uh, one of the hackathons. Hmm. Dang, that's, that's powerful. So I, one last part on this rapid prototyping, I must know. Okay, so you have maybe like every year you set your goals. And you're kind of like, okay, six months from now, I want to be here. Nine months from here, I want to be here. But if you're practicing this rapid prototyping and you're setting yourself to maybe like a five-day hard stop or a 15 or 30-day hard stop, how do you, like, 
my intuition tells me that it's good to have long-term goals, but Mm -hmm. you probably learn so much through that process. Six months down the line, you realize how delusion delusional you were with like what was appropriate goals, you know, six months Mm -hmm. out. How do you deal with that? I I'm, I'm curious now, man. (laughs) (laughs) So this is, uh, this is the same problem I have every new year, you know, many people like me also decide, okay, this is the best time to have new new year resolution, right? And then, okay, I sit for one hour, two hours, and then come up with a plan. And maybe I try to stick to this plan for two weeks, four sometimes, and then I forget. And then six months after that, I suddenly discover this list and then think, hmm, was I that stupid to put this as a goal? <laughs> <laughs> Why did I do this? <laughs> so I don't know. Just uh, somehow things happen and then yeah, just try to <laughs> to stay with them. So I don't know. I don't have an answer. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's kind of like what is the uh, uh, you know, like the answer to life or something like that. Maybe that's what that question was. So you did well, you, uh, <laughs> okay, cool, man. Um, what do you recommend that does not take too much effort, but solves like 80% of the challenge of becoming like a, uh, Kaggle competition winner? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, there is no easy answer, unfortunately. Okay. So, to me, it took half a year of uh, uh, active participation to actually end up in top 10. Uh, and this is not even winning money, it was, I was fifth. So only top three win money. But actually being uh, like ending in top 10 is super difficult. So this is recognized in the community as a sign of, uh, that's why they, they have this Kaggle Master uh, sort of uh, page saying that this person did well in this competition. Mm-hmm. So this is a recognizable thing. And unfortunately, there is no easy answer but practice. And for the competition that I did pretty well, I started from the beginning and then it lasted for three months and almost every day I did a little bit. So just read forums, read forums, see what other people do, um, try to also to not uh, get to behind, uh, try to reproduce what they do, maybe generate some ideas, pick the most promising one, try to implement this. And also I think sharing, like sharing some things on forums also helps because this creates this uh, community that if you share, people share back. So when you discover things that really work and give you competitive edge, it's still helpful to, you know, to share these things. So because then others will share share back some other insights mm. um, yeah but uh, so it's really helpful for a career it was helpful for my career to spend this half a year on Kaggle um, and try to to do well there because it's immense amount of knowledge there um, but it's also a big time investment and then at some point I realized I'm spending too much time on this uh, let's stop um, so, but probably the best, uh, the best way of doing this is read kernels, try to understand it. And kernels are often written by, uh, not professional software engineers and trying to understand them is often difficult. So, but still try to figure out what's going on in this kernel and why it works. 
and then also try to read forums and then it should help you maybe not end up in gold but uh, with a silver medal perhaps which is still a lot of uh, uh, a lot of experience a lot of uh, you you would learn a lot of things mm -hmm. yeah i uh th thanks for sharing that so i i kind of I prep out some framework for the, the questions of the podcast and then I kind of go on these rabbit trails as they pop up. But after I wrote that question down and as far as our conversation has gone right now, I actually kind of, I like the answer that you gave. I think there will be an audience that wants to hear that message, mm -hmm. but I'm actually more genuinely interested in like, I think based on what we've talked about, it's important to get a job with your skills, mm -hmm. to get paid for your skills. So I actually, if, if you'll ask, let me ask like mm -hmm. almost the same question. What do you recommend that does not take too much effort, but solves 80% of the challenge of basically convincing somebody that you are a good person to hire as a machine mm -hmm. learning professional or, yes. you know. So, well, first of all, <laughs> buy my book. Yeah. <laughs> of course, projects. Yes. Yeah. Yes, projects. Of course, yes. So one of the things I uh, think are super helpful uh, is uh, build a project, but then also get noticed. So if you have an idea, find a data set for this and try to implement this idea. If you don't find a data set, try to build your own data set. This is difficult, but if idea is cool, then it's totally worth it. So buy a so build this data set. But then also, like once you have this, once you, you train a model, don't just, don't let it just sit there. Let the world know about this. So put the code on GitHub, uh, write a post on Medium or any blog post. Then uh, try to use social media to somehow tell the world, hey, there is this piece of content, please have a look and create awareness about yourself. And then I think if you do this like for 10 projects, you will get noticed for sure. Like, especially if you post somewhere like Hacker News or some places like that. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of, uh, there are a lot of people uh, who are interested in this type of content, especially people right now, machine learning is a hot topic. And when you learn it yourself and then also try to teach others, there are like this, a lot of people, there's a big audience of people who want to also learn from this experience and also try to, to reproduce this project. And for them, it will be very helpful. And for you, um, you will get noticed. Okay, that's really solid. Thanks for sharing that. Um, what do you think is overly difficult to master with machine learning that newcomers should kind of just completely avoid? Well, pro probably at the beginning, people should avoid uh, going too deep into theoretical foundation, especially with things like support vector machines or there are some certain algorithms that have a really solid theoretical foundation, but at the same time, it requires uh, a lot of uh, knowledge to actually to be able to be able to understand it. So these uh, support vector machines, for example, require um, a few years of calculus and um, I don't know, a year of uh, uh, how it's called, convex optimization. So like 
things that are pretty difficult and advanced and uh, people study them in uh, like third, fourth uh, year of university. Uh, people who major in math, for example, or applied math. Uh, so this is pretty difficult and it might give you a sense that I don't understand anything. So let's quit because it's not worth my time to like, and people, when they see these equations, they, they're super difficult and then just, yeah, give up, people give up, mm -hmm. but don't. So don't let these equations guide <laughs> you. Right. Um, because there are libraries that you often don't need to uh, to to be afraid of what's inside. You just need to be able to use them, like uh, like a, a metaphor I used also already. Like you don't need to know how TCP IP stack works to be able to create a web service, right? So of course it's helpful, but for for a newcomer, certainly focus should be on. Uh, I don't know, learning flask rather than going deep into the OCI model. Um, mm. So I think the same, uh, so just stay at the problem, like at the right level of abstraction. And for the beginners, it might be a library. And then when you need to go deeper, then maybe then you go. So don't don't try to, to, to pick the onion from the start. Maybe yeah, just stay on the top first. And then when the time comes, then maybe you dig you dig deep and try to to to, to go yeah. down these abstraction levels. Mm, that's all. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, don't peel, don't try and peel the onion all at all at once. Yes. That's yes, awesome. Yes. There's so much wisdom, you know, in that. Holy cow. Okay. Yeah, I love the whole con. Like even with your prototyping methodology, mm -hmm. it's about this like, uh, you know, being incremental, seeing mm -hmm. if it works, and uh, super dynamic, like. Uh, I know I asked you like, what are your morning routines? You're like, whatever I need to do, I'm pretty adaptable to like whatever <laughs> needs to be done. And I think that's the name of the game, man. Like what you're like the, the real core of your message is like, just, you know, focus, realize that you have these tendencies, maybe that you might try to get into the weeds or whatever, but just be proactive on not trying to peel the onion, be incremental or not trying to peel the onion all at once. So that seriously, man, I'm resonating with your message here. So thank you. Let's see here. Um, let's see here. Okay. So what is the easiest way for someone to start integrating the promises of auto ML or auto machine learning into their workflows? Like how can we do that starting tomorrow? Yes. So auto ML, this is, we already talked about. Uh, so this is like the thing that, uh, takes off the load from you of uh, trained models and uh, finding the best one. Mm -hmm. uh, so to use them, you don't really need much. You can just, uh, for example, if you already use scikit-learn, you can uh, use a library that is called auto scikit-learn. That okay. basically just tries to, to, to find the best model. Uh, or there are some libraries like Bayesian optimization libraries that um, let you uh, find the best parameters of uh, your model. So this is something also to to explore. And then finally, there are companies like Google, Amazon, Microsoft that uh, that have their clouds. And in the cloud, uh, in their cloud services, they have a special service. Uh, I think most of them have 
uh, this tree for sure, and then other smaller cloud providers also. Uh, there is uh, auto ML, and then you just have a data set, upload this data set, and then this thing figures out uh, how to deal with uh, each type of uh, data, each type of column that you have there. If you upload a CSV, and then you also need to specify, okay, this column is the target. This is the, the, the number or the category I want to predict. And then it figures out what to do with the rest. It trains the best model and then it says, okay, this is the model. You can use it uh, either in our services or you can download it and use it on your own. And then I think this is uh, hmm. the best way is just to go there to your favorite cloud provider just try to play with uh, what they offer and see, uh, actually learn and uh, observe how it, easy it is to, to use these things. And uh, this is one of the other things I mentioned that uh, I enjoy uh, seeing it as a trend is that machine learning becomes a commodity. Uh, a lot more people can uh, start using it even without, uh, you know, having a proper mathematical background, like having a PhD in mathematics or physics or like some other, um, uh, some other complex subject. Uh, but simple people, mere mortals, uh, like somebody who can code, can already uh, benefit immensely from these uh, services, these libraries, and can mm. go ahead and serve uh, to solve uh, real business problems and uh, help the businesses grow. Yeah, the e so the ecosystem has kind of matured to yes. a point where there is no excuses. Like you can get out there and get your hands dirty and solve real world problems mm -hmm. and you don't need to be like some PhD genius. Mm -hmm. Like there's no excuses. If you want to get your hands dirty, you can. Mm -hmm. That's kind of yes. what I'm hearing. Yes, yes, exactly. Cool, yeah, thanks for sharing that. Um, what are three key learnings from your experience running machine learning models in production? Yeah, so uh, go as fast as possible. So try to deploy a model as quick as possible. Because um, one, er like one reason uh, of uh, project failure that I saw was spending too much time on making the perfect model. Don't, don't make the model perfect. Just have something super simple, like a simple baseline, and then try to deploy it, try to move uh, with this prototype in production, like with this baseline in production, and then see how people react to this. Don't make it overly complex. Just as simple as uh, uh, just take some category and then compute mean uh, within each category. Like for example, if you want to predict uh, a price, for a, an item and just look at the mean price at the average price in each category and then just use that as prediction so something super simple you see that all audi uh, car of this particular uh, model like on average have this price and use this as price suggestion don't make a super complex model like in your own network or something just go with simple things first. Try to deploy that first. See how users react to this. See if they actually use it. If they don't, stop. Because like after investing a lot of time in a machine learning model, any project, um, this may be another learning, um, that people tend to 
have difficulties stopping working on a project. You know, mm. maybe you heard about this idea effect. If you build something yourself, you really love it. Even if it's uh, like for an outsider, it's like all, you know. It's your nice. baby. You, yes, it, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh yes. man, this is, and, yeah, carry on. Yeah. Yeah, and then like, for example, you build a desk or chair and this chair is super ugly. Right, because it's not don't call my baby ugly <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> but like to you this is your chair you build it yourself like maybe it took i don't know three hours but you made it right <laughs> it's not falling apart you can see on this yeah so you really love it and the same the same thing happens with software products people who invest a lot of time into this maybe it's not super optimal and then maybe it just goes down like every, every second hour but it's still like people invested a lot of time into this and they have troubles letting go. And I know that I'm myself like that. So having like mm -hmm. realizing this is helpful to, um, to, you know, just to let go things at some point because there's no point investing more time in this. But at the beginning, like when you spent only one week, and it again it comes back to these prototyping skills, like just have a simple baseline and then if it doesn't work it's easier to let it go to stop working on this because you clearly see that your customers are not super excited about this so it's not something you expected to see you learn that and you move on yeah dang that's awesome yeah. oh yeah thanks for sharing that uh what is a gentle approach to learning more about kubernetes i know you're excited about that technology well yeah, for Kubernetes, uh, I think uh, knowing Kubernetes uh, right now is quite important for uh, employability, at least concepts, not, uh, not, you don't need to know internals, but at least concepts like what are the things are there in Kubernetes is quite helpful to know. And for that, there is a thing called Minikube. So it's basically a small Kubernetes that you can just run on your laptop and then try to uh, to deploy a simple service. Like for example, you create a simple service um, that predicts the price of a car. And then just get a Minikube uh, instance on your machine and try to uh, deploy your web service with this uh, price prediction model in Kubernetes. This will not take more than five hours of your time, but this is super valuable uh, to know and then hmm. you won't get lost uh, when you get hired and then it turns out that uh, the company uses Kubernetes. And then, uh, for many people, especially data scientists, this is something scary. Like, hey, I'm not used to these kind of things. This is, uh, I'll let backend developers deal with this. This is not my, well, not my thing. Uh, so they just, Afraid, but Kubernetes uh, made it very easy for people to actually um, to abstract from these uh, difficult things of auto scaling. Because it, uh, what I like about this, it makes it super easy to work with infrastructure infrastructure related things. So it's a very nice abstraction on top of uh, you know even AWS machines or um, your own machines that you have. Uh, we don't use AWS, but many companies still have their own uh, data centers and having Kubernetes there is a very good abstraction to you uh, for managing all these machines. And uh, it's hmm. not that difficult for 
a user of Kubernetes to learn how to, to use it. Of course, it's difficult for people who are professionals like uh, uh, reliability engineers, DevOps engineers. This is uh, their bread basically to, to maintain Kubernetes cluster. Um, but as a user, it doesn't take too much time to actually learn how to use it. And there are, there are good tutorials in um, something like Kubeflow getting started. Just follow this tutorial and that should be enough to be, uh, to be helpful. Uh, also not wait till somebody with this knowledge implement this because it's easy to implement this, the, yourself. So you shouldn't be scared about Kubernetes. You can actually learn this in a reasonable amount of time and already uh, use this knowledge to, to build useful things. Cool. And it sounds like Kubeflow is kind of like a really, like it, it's like the least intimidating way maybe to go about. Cool. Yeah. Kubeflow is actually uh, like there's me, uh, Kubernetes and Minikube just to, to learn about uh, Kubernetes, but there's this thing Kubeflow. Uh, Kubeflow is um, another abstraction on top of uh, Kubernetes for uh, training machine learning models and for serving machine learning models. Okay. Um, oh, perfect. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So this is, uh, um, I'm still uh, exploring it to, to see how useful it is, but many companies have adopted it and say that this is super useful. They can move a lot faster with uh, Kubeflow. Um, also, like there are alternatives to Kubeflow, like this is so-called machine learning platforms where you can train a model, then deploy a model. So for example, in case of Amazon, there is uh, AWS SageMaker. It's quite a similar tool for training and hosting models. And I'm sure in Google Cloud or Microsoft Azure, there's something like that as well. Okay. And Kubeflow is uh, cloud agnostic, so you can use it in any cloud and you don't have to use cloud for that. You can just use your uh, own servers, your own data center to also have the benefits of this ML platform. Okay. Yeah, that's awesome, man. I'm going to dig into that probably, well, tomorrow because it's, it's getting <laughs> a little late here, but yeah, I'll be digging into uh, the, the promises of Kubeflow. So thanks for sharing that. I know we're kind of running, how's your, how's your computer doing? We got a few minutes left? Yes, 10. 10 minutes, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so these, these are just kind of wind down questions. Um, so just whatever comes to mind, go ahead and I, I think I got like five of them, so I'm just gonna go mm -hmm. for it, okay? Okay. What qualities do you look for in a good meetup? Uh, well, people that they can talk to and uh, topics. So free food is uh, helpful, but not uh, a must. Okay, <laughs> yeah. But mostly like being able to, to talk to people. So for, for example, to learn from something or um, not necessarily learn, but maybe find somebody who's interested in my knowledge. Uh, and then somebody who wants to listen to what I say is also good. So people and free food helps. <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, I, I hear you there. Cool. Um, how do you decide what speaking opportunities to take on? Well, right now I take pretty much everything. Okay. Uh, I don't have that many speaking opportunities and I proactively seek to, to speak somewhere. Uh, and I still learn how to make my call for proposal sound exciting. So actually I 
get to speak on conferences because I often don't. Uh, so right now I am basically, I'll agree to everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you, I mean, you made a promise to yourself, like I'm going to speak more and then uh, you're just, you're, it's almost like, um, yeah, it's, it's almost like there's a group of people out there that are like, sign me up. And then there's other people. I've just noticed this, like booking people on the podcast. Some people are like, yes, please sign me up. And other people are like, oh, what's the nature of this? And so, mm -hmm. yeah, the people, I guess, and their motives. Uh, but I was kind of curious what your, what was kind of behind your initiative there. Mm -hmm. And uh, I look forward to promoting, like, if mm -hmm. you want more speaking opportunities, I look forward to help promoting that. Yes, I definitely look forward to look for more speaking uh, opportunities. And if you cool. can, I'll be very happy and appreciate that. Yeah, uh, this is a real quick question re relating to speaking, but I mean, did it just come natural to you or did you have to, was there some sort of like transformation you went through that you have some insight on now, like how to be a good speaker or what's, what's your thoughts on that? So it's somehow natural, but also in some conferences, of, uh, some conferences really go an extra mile and they make sure, they want to make sure that the quality of the presentations they have is super good and then they do some coaching sessions and uh, and i was uh, oh, last wow. year uh, i was very happy to to get something like this and uh, have an experienced speaker help me okay uh, but um, yeah mostly it's not just natural so i think the the, the main thing is to to have a coherent story so not just a bunch of facts, but uh, try to, to, to have a story there. And, um, yeah. and then also one of the things I didn't do and then I learned from the, uh, the coaches is to uh, make sure the audience is never lost. So have every now and then have an outline and somehow summarize what we just learned and what we about to learn. And then mm. at the end have a summary. So then people leave the room with a clear message in their head. Uh, and for that summary is very helpful. Yeah, that's solid. Uh, dang. Thanks for sharing that. That's cool, man. Um, let's see here. Three favorite learning resources for machine learning. We've got the book. Well, that's Kaggle. yeah. Kaggle. Okay. Well, um, so the thing I started with uh, is a machine learning course on Coursera from Stanford. Okay, excellent. So even though it's now, I don't know, eight years old, I think it's still a very good resource too. It's super not demanding in terms of uh, math. It's really just the, the teacher explains it so well. So then I think it's even after eight years, it's still a very useful resource to, to go and watch. Okay, cool. Any, any other ones or those are, you're good enough. You've got so the, then there are uh, like more, uh, so for example, from Stanford, there is, um, um, a very useful, uh, course on, uh, neural nets for computer vision. Okay. Um, so there's like CS200 something. I don't remember the abbreviation. So but if you Google for neural nets for computer computer vision, Stanford's uh, Stanford, then you'll find the course. And it's quite demanding course, but I found it very helpful uh, when I was learning about computer vision. 
Okay. So peeling the onion, maybe don't start there, but yes. consider it. This in- is like an advanced, uh, advanced um, course, advanced level. Okay, cool. That's awesome. All right. Here's a, here's one for you. Best advice you've ever received. Yeah. So um, the best advice uh, I received was, uh, that was kind of the topic of our conversation is that uh, uh, math is not as important as you think. As an obvious, you think, okay, this is math. I really need to dig deep. It's not that important. What is important is solving business problems and being able to, to code to solve these problems. And don't be afraid of starting with the baseline. So just if you're, if instead of machine learning models, model, you have a bunch of if statements, it's equally good. So start with if statements, start with heuristics. And then if you see that this is helpful, then move on to, to do some behavior with machine learning. Cool. Yeah, that's solid, man. Thanks. Uh, okay. The most important book you've ever read, and there's no there's no rules here. It could be like just a fiction. Well, uh, well, if you have, I, I'm going for one. But if you got if you got more, you know, what's your hierarchy of a couple of? Okay, so the first book I ever read and had uh, a big influence on my career was Effective Java. Effective Java. Okay. Effective Java. Even though it's about Java, as the title suggests, it's not just Java. So it does use Java, but many things are quite uh, quite general. Uh, so things like good style, immutability, and things like this. As a software developer, this book had a lot of influence on me. Uh, well, and especially as a Java developer, so some things were directly applicable to the things I was doing, but also teaching best practices, best coding styles, and then explaining the immutability matters, threat safety, good uh, style, uh, like having uh, good names, all these things. Uh, then maybe also um, structure and interpretation of computer programs. Maybe you heard about this one. So this is a pretty old book. And I use this book to, to learn about functional programming. So it uses uh, Scheme, which is a dialect, uh, dialect of Lisp. Um, and just reading it and then going through exercises. I think after this book, I got, I understood what functional programming is, like the basics of functional programming. And I could use this everywhere in Java, in Python, and uh, not be afraid of that. And uh, also with time, I realized not to, to understood how not to overuse this, uh, because people, when they get excited about functional programming, in my opinion, can overdo things. Uh, so, but uh, I think uh, this structure in the in- interpretation of computer programs uh, is a great introduction to functional programming. Then other thing that I um, read uh, just two years or three years ago um, was uh, designing data intensive uh, applications. This is a super nice book and I think it's a must read for any uh, software engineer, anyone who, who creates uh, code. So it teaches uh, basics of uh, how to design your systems, how to make them reliable, how to make them available. Um, And then it also goes into basics of data engineering, like what is map reviews, what is streaming, um, and things like this. I think it's uh, um, 
I still use this book as a reference. Sometimes I go to this, it's uh, on my desk at home. I often just go through this, and, okay, yes. Now, it's not very demanding, but it gives a great overview of things that were happening in uh, distributed systems. Mm. And then it also has um, references, like in, if you want to, to, to go deeper into some topics, there are references in Google, and you can dig deeper. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I've seen that on the O'Reilly. That's one yes. of the O'Reilly books. It's got like yes. a, a pig or something on the front, like a boar. I think or something. There's a, yeah. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. a, okay. That's a, it's come on my radar before, but I, now I'm uh, very interested uh, just mm-hmm. based on your, okay. Thanks for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Um, what are like the top programming languages to learn in 2020? You can just, you know. I'm boring. Let's say Java. <laughs> Java. Okay. I see you already know Python, of course. Like, <laughs> yeah. If you don't know, then uh, of course Python for machine learning it's a must. Uh, but uh, well, why Java? So Java is like some people call it COBOL of uh, this century, right? Like COBOL is something that nobody wants to use, but still have to because some institutions have still have the software that they need to maintain in COBOL. I don't think uh, Java is COBOL yet. And I think uh, like uh, just if you know already Python, then learning a different language like Java helps a lot. Uh, just to, to think differently slightly. Yeah. Um, then I also think uh, I'm again boring, but JavaScript. I think this is the you really, really need to know it as a software engineer. Uh, even if you want to do machine learning, uh, then sometimes having some kind of uh, like for demonstration, for demo purposes, like if you want to showcase it to somebody, then uh, a web service is the best, uh, like a web page is the best medium for that. Mm-hmm. And then being able to quickly hack something in JavaScript, I think it's important uh, to, to convey your message, to convince people. Um, yeah, so I, I'm a bit uh, old fashioned, so I don't watch, I don't follow the, the latest trend with languages. Uh, and especially now there are so many of them. So I, I would simply suggest the, the languages that certainly will have, uh, like they are quite old, but they certainly have uh, impact. Yeah, they've stood the test of time and, yes, exactly. and they're still like alive type thing, I yes, guess. And so. Java is still the most popular language in, uh, in the world according to some indices. Yeah. Uh, for some indices, uh, uh, JavaScript and Python is quickly catching up. So I think knowing them is uh, quite good. Also, I think for machine learning engineer, uh, knowing a bit of C++ and C is helpful because uh, as a Python user, sometimes things just Python is slow. Sometimes you really need to, uh, machine learning involves a lot of number crunching. And this is where um, you don't wait to uh, uh, for a web service to answer. You have CPU intensive workload, and for that, C is the best thing. So sometimes it just helps to quickly write something in C and then uh, use it from Python, and then mm. it, it can have a dramatic effect on performance, like going from hours to minutes, like from I don't know half an, uh, from sixty minute to maybe half a minute, right? For for certain cases. Uh, especially when it comes to number crunching, C is still the best uh, language for that. Dang, I have not, I have not had that response yet on the show, and I mm-hmm. am forever grateful. That's 
just more insight into the mm-hmm. ecosystem here. And uh, you certainly delivered. Uh, so I thank you for coming on the show, sharing all this knowledge. I want to know what is your call to action here? We've got the book coming out. Uh, they can go sign up for the meet. Uh, do we, if they want to connect with you, where do they go connect with you? Uh, Twitter, last words, LinkedIn, last words, <laughs> connect yeah, me, call me. to action. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like if you wanted to summarize anything or this is your, this is your time. Yeah. As a summary, I think uh, maybe the message I was trying to, to convey is don't be, don't go deep immediately. Try to, to peel the onion slowly. Uh, enjoy the process and then also move fast. Uh, don't be afraid of breaking things. Um, then you can learn machine learning just by doing. You don't need to know um, a lot of theory. And yeah, I guess that's the summary. Uh, and also I'm trying to build my um, personal brand right now to be more present in online. So I created Twitter like two weeks ago or three. So follow me there. I'll try to, to post things from time to time. And okay. also LinkedIn, yes. So I'm more active on LinkedIn. So feel free to connect or follow. Okay, awesome. And we'll make sure they got the link to the book. Mm-hmm. The first three chapters are out in an appendix mm-hmm. uh, right yes. now. And that is uh, continually progressing. And you get you don't have to wait for the book to come out to jump in and get your hands dirty and start building your portfolio. Mm-hmm. Yes. Thank you. for Cool. <laughs> yeah. Alexi, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, I would love to uh, keep this, you know, let's, let's do it again sometime. Like this was yes. ser- seriously rewarding. It was so, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, this was fun. Okay. Peace yes. out folks.